0: Mark Dever is married to his wife, Connie. They have two grown children. You have grandchildren. How many? One grandchild. Mark is the senior pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church on Capitol Hill in our nation's capital, just a couple of blocks from Supreme Court, the Capitol building. He has been the pastor there since 1994, and I'll have the opportunity in our interview after this session to ask him some more about what that's been like and how he arrived there and the ministry that the Lord has seen fit to really bless and encourage through almost 30 years there. Mark has a Ph.D. from Cambridge where he studied the Puritan Richard Sibbs, and he has written a number of books, uh, books on every book of the Bible, a collection of sermons where he preached through one sermon on each of the 66 books and then Crossway put that together. So they're two big books, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament, but they really make a great opportunity to get a big overview of the Bible. Uh, in addition, books on the, what is a healthy church, Nine Marks of the Church. He has started this ministry, Nine Marks, which I uh, commend to you, and you can use it with your Presbyterian discretion for the many things that we love and for the some things that we would disagree on. But it is a wonderful ministry, and I benefit from it often. And most of all, I am grateful to Mark because he is a friend won't take any more time away from his sermon to tell some of the very funny stories of becoming Mark's friend. But I hope you all have a friend somewhere in your life like Mark who can both give you much better encouragement than you deserve and will also put you in your place. <laughs> so thank you, Mark, for being my friend for many years and for coming to be with us. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, thank you for the lovely introduction. Yes.
1: And it's good to be with you, friends. Thank you for coming out on a Saturday night when you have uh, before you tomorrow, the Lord's Day, more attendance at church, and yet here you are on a Saturday night. If salvation could be earned by virtue, perhaps, well, anyway. (laughs) Um, What we're going to think of in our time together, Lord willing, today and tomorrow is uh, marks of a healthy church, and one of them that I want us to begin with tonight is the idea of conversion... Or, said more abstractly, the distinction of the church from the world. You know, you may not have thought of this before, but if you look at the history of evangelical Christianity in America, uh, very often theological liberalism has first come into our churches through evangelism. Not that evangelism is bad, evangelism is good, evangelism is necessary. But evangelism is the time when we as Christians speak to the world, explaining who Jesus is and what he's come to do, and how we say things, specifically if we're trying to say things in order to make sense to the world, or is it to be attractive to the world, can begin to play with what we're actually saying our message is. So one of the things that we as Christians need to do in our churches is to make sure that we have a clear idea of the way God calls us to be different. Now, more largely, we could talk about holiness, but particularly, I want us to think about one particular aspect, which is a biblical idea of conversion. Because I think today, perhaps as never before in our culture, a biblical faithfulness must entail faithfulness in this idea of understanding conversion and of teaching it and exemplifying it in our churches. And part of what that means is we have to be okay with being called to be exclusive. I'll unpack that as I talk for a little bit here. What I want to do is first confirm that we're thinking the same biblical thoughts about conversion. And then it after I've done that, I want to see particularly about a common mindset that I see in evangelicals and what our understanding of conversion should say to that mindset. Let me begin with an illustration from an autobiography by Langston Hughes, the famous writer of the Harlem Renaissance. He writes about his own upbringing in African-American churches. I quote, I was saved from sin when I was going on 13, but not really saved. It happened like this. There was a big revival at my Auntie Reed's church. Every night for weeks there had been much preaching, singing, praying, and shouting. Finally, all the young people had gone to the altar and were saved but one boy and me. He was around her son named Wesley. Wesley and I were surrounded by sisters and deacons praying. It was very hot in the church and getting late now. Finally, Wesley said to me in a whisper, I'm tired of sitting here. Let's get up and be saved. So he got up and was saved, and I was left all alone on the mourner's bench. My aunt came and knelt at my knees and cried while prayers and songs swirled all around me in the little church. The whole congregation prayed for me alone in a mighty wail of moans. God had not struck Wesley dead for taking his name in vain or for lying in the temple, so I decided that maybe to save further trouble, I'd better lie too and say that Jesus had come and get up and be saved. So I got up, and suddenly the whole room broke into a sea of shouting as they saw me rise. I couldn't bear to tell my aunt that I had lied, that I had deceived everybody in the church, that I hadn't seen Jesus, and that now I didn't believe there was a Jesus anymore. Friends, honestly, for many people today, such hypocrisy is less of a problem than the actual idea of conversion itself. For many people in the 21st century, even speaking of conversion doesn't seem very civil. In fact, to some it seems rude to the point of intolerance, and to others it just honestly seems scary. What's going on? Well, people today are skeptical that anyone can really change. Politicians, lawyers, preachers, professors, reporters, lobbyists, even Presbyterians. I mean, all have their predetermined vices, don't they? Wisdom today is thought to be in accepting your internal circumstances and adjusting to them, not trying to fundamentally change them. What is it Freud wrote? It is through love and work that we exchange crippling emotional conflict for ordinary unhappiness. The idea is that the die is cast, our lot is fixed, our personality is assigned, and except for some terrible trauma, the assumption is that the leopard does not change his spots, the anxious person's personality the insecure person, their psyche. And that's the way it is. And maturity comes from facing up to the truth of that and resigning yourself to it. And the suggestion that you can change is regarded with serious suspicion. Any such suggestion is taken to be a potentially sinister tool of manipulation in the hands of those who would coerce you into conformity with their standards by cultivating in you self-hatred, loathing of some characteristic of yourself and your own person, whether that would be of your sexual desires or your vocational ambitions or your ethical standards or your religious beliefs. We are who we are, we're taught, and we should be proud of it. But friends, for all of the uncertainty and even suspicion even about the possibility of change, people do have a deep longing for change. There's no doubt about it. There's surely a restlessness with the slings and arrows of outrageous fortunes. And if the truth were known, a dissatisfaction with ourselves that is as widespread as it is deep-seated. We today are not content. And so we, we rearrange the furniture, we, we paint the hallway, we buy some new clothes... If it gets worse, we wonder if changing where we live wouldn't be helpful. We we work to have flexible hours at work, or we start working more remotely. And if we think it possible, we might even work to change our job. But sometimes we might even long for changing our spouse. Today, even those more traditionally fixed boundaries of gender and life itself are transgressed in a vain attempt to find satisfaction meet the deep lack of satisfaction that we find in our own situations. And yet as work conditions and jobs and marriages and families and even gender and death become subject to our own choices, too many people seem to find themselves defeated, trapped, hopeless. Again and again, Christians do hold out hope of a different, better, more humane life to the non-Christians around us. There does seem to be something, even to non-Christians, that's going on with these Christians. Do you remember how Paul wrote of it in one of his letters? He refers to the conversion of the Thessalonians in First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. Therefore we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So after Paul left Thessalonica, the conversions there had produced such obvious changes and had caused such a stir that Paul had continued to hear about it wherever he went. The news traveled faster than he did. The, the reception that the Thessalonians had given to Paul and his gospel uh, spelled out in verses 9 and 10. You see there, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven. So just as we see in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 3, so here in these verses, we have another fine epitome of saving faith. So true conversion will always involve turning in faith to the true God from the false ones that we set up. True conversion will always involve us in serving God in love and serving those around us as well for his glory. And true conversion will always involve realizing that the final answers don't come here, but that we await the coming justice of Jesus. The Thessalonians had just such a conversion. It had been confirmed to Paul as it had been gossiped about all over the place. So conversion is an idea that's not just in the New Testament, it's in the Old Testament as well. It's, it's basically the idea in the Bible of turning. And when it's used positively, it means turning to God. A person who turns is said to be converted, or is a convert. Various people in the New Testament are called converted to Christ. In many ways, the book of Acts is a series of conversions. Uh, Pentecost's thousands Paul, Cornelius, Lydia, the Philippian jailer, so many more we could name. So what exactly is conversion? Most simply, it's the act of turning from sin, what the Bible calls repentance, and turning to Christ in faith. So in Acts 20, 21, Paul summarizes his preaching to the Ephesians. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. So conversion is the translation of man from the state of wrath and sin to the state of grace and faith. Conversion includes repentance and faith, and it evidences regeneration. Conversion is the act of turning from sin, what the Bible calls repentance, and turning to Christ in faith. Christian conversion has continued to create provocation and hope-giving anomalies to people all around us. Uh, Christians were not unique in defending slavery. Many Americans defended slavery, but they were in the lead in ending slavery. Christians have been the ones who have pioneered education and care for the poor, the rights of women and minorities. Albert Einstein noticed in Nazi Germany but almost all the scientists and researchers and professors that he admired all submitted to the Nazi tyranny. Quote, Only among groups of pedestrian people who were unexciting members of their unexciting churches did Einstein find heroic rebuttal of Nazi doctrine and practice. As a result, he wrote of the church, That which I had hitherto despised, now I wholeheartedly came to honor and admire. I remember when I lived in England for a number of years, I had a good friend, uh, an atheist, who was moving to Scotland. And I was at a going away party for him. And when I talked to him about what he was going to do when he got there, he said the first thing he'd be doing would be looking up a good church. And I was surprised and I asked him, why? And he said that he always did that when he moved someplace because Christians are such great people. Well, friends, that's a, that's a real testimony left in that man's life. Now, admitting that Christians are far from perfect, what's going on both with the distinctive character of Christians and particularly with the claims standing behind it that they've been converted, changed? Is conversion simply the breaking in on the conscious mind of connections long growing in the subconscious, as William James thought? Is it some kind of physiological brainwashing, Or behavioristic psychology, with the Christian evangelist as an amateur Pavlov, merely creating and manipulating reactions and reflexes. It's common today to affirm that we are spiritual beings, in the sense of, you know, spiritual, not religious, people say. It's popular to humbly deny finding, but to appreciate the journey, saying the journey is the point. But friend, I I don't agree with that. An unending quest, a cosmic traffic jam? Sounds like me on Monday driving back to D.C. up I-95. Have you ever tried to drive between Richmond and Washington, D.C.? I mean, that would have been a sure way for the South to secede. I mean, if they had just had 95 built by then, there's no way anybody could have gotten through. That's what a lot of people imagine all we can look for in this life to be. It's just kind of a journey that never ends friend, you wouldn't rejoice in that. We we rejoice in finding the truth. Gandhi was very honest when he wrote in his autobiography, what I want to achieve, what I've been striving and pining to achieve these 30 years is self-realization, to see God face to face. I have not yet found him, but I am seeking after him, for it is an unbroken fortune to me that I'm still so far from him. I have not seen him, neither have I known him. That's Gandhi's own confession in his autobiography. Well, as Christians, we believe that there are countless people throughout history who have come to know God. And we understand that conversion is a miracle that brings us to do what Gandhi said he never did, to know God. So, friend, if you're here tonight... As a Christian, and you know yourself to be converted, you are saying that with all your sins and foibles, you know God, and God knows you, which is an extraordinary claim to make. But that's what, that's what we're talking about. That's what we mean when we talk about becoming a Christian or coming to know God, and that's what we want to be very clear about in our churches. Let me make three simple statements about how conversion happens and see if you're clear about this in your own church. One, we're called to repent of our sins and believe in Christ. We're called to repent of our sins and believe in Christ. Again, I would go to Acts chapter 20, verse 21, Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders. Great place to see this. Acts 20, 21. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Here, and in Acts 26.20, Paul seems to summarize his gospel proclamation in terms of his appeal for their response. So closely allied to the news about Jesus is the response demanded that it seems to become part of it, even a summary of the message. True repentance always accompanies saving faith. The lack of one falsifies any credible claim of the other. Calvin said that repentance and faith should be joined rather than confused. There are these two aspects that repentance, that is, turning away from every form of rebellion in order to serve the living and true God on his own terms, and faith. Personal trust in Jesus is the only Savior from God's coming correct judgment of us we shouldn't misunderstand this faith this faith is not mere knowledge like the demons in James 2 are said to have no this this faith is not merely the approval of some fact like say Agrippa approved of some facts about Jesus in Acts 26 no there must be personal trust in Christ as part of this faith if it's to be saving but then there's a problem human depravity The very thing that makes us need to turn to God, our sin, also prevents us. So what are we to do? Well, the answer to this is not to ignore our need or to try to redefine it or soften it. We need to be converted. We wickedly defraud God of his glory, says Calvin. This is true of everyone. But... Many of us have repented of our sins and trusted in Christ, and we're doing so even this very day. So you realize everyone is either a believer or an unbeliever. Everyone is either converted or unconverted. There's no middle ground. No one is born a Christian, not even those who've been born into the home of the most pious Christians that have ever lived. You must be converted to be a Christian. So Paul reminded the Ephesian Christians of what they were before they were converted. Two more statements then that I assume are non-controversial here at Christ's covenant this evening, that we could certainly look at any of them more. Number two, God must give us the gifts of repentance and faith. And number three, God uses means to give these gifts. Number two, God must give us the gifts of repentance and faith. And number three, God uses means to give these gifts. There are many ways that our understanding of the gospel shows itself in our understanding of conversion and conversely, that our misunderstandings of one may be reflected in misrepresentations of the other. Let me come to one that's particularly important for our churches today. Since this is a conference focusing on churches, thinking about what this means for us corporately in our congregations, let me just take a couple of examples. Uh, A book in the UK was published some years ago called Gospel-Centered Church. And I have some concerns about it, but also appreciation. My main difference with this book would be the fact that these guys don't like any kind of formal membership in the local church. They refer to one person mentioning this, that there were hoops to jump through before he felt that he belonged in our church. That was showing that these hoops, as he called them, these were just meaningless steps. Now, my response to that would be, if membership is meaningless in your church, then requirements for it, of course, will appear arbitrary and counterproductive and pointless. But this particular book attractively presented the popular call to build our churches so that people belong before they have to believe. That's the little rub that I want us to think about for the rest of our time together this evening. That's been a popular nostrum, a popular idea that's been forwarded among churches and evangelical pastors for the last generation, that people need to belong before they will ever believe. I I quote the book, people are attracted to the Christian community before they're attracted to the Christian message. The best place for belief to emerge is in a context where people already feel they belong. If a believing community is a persuasive witness for the gospel, then people need to be included to see that witness at work. The best way to draw people is not to make them feel on the outside of what's going on, but to include and involve them. Ah, oh, it's interesting. I mean, there's some stuff in there that seems like that's probably a good idea. But then, then there's some stuff in there that I think should be concerning to you. Or again, uh, in the same book a little bit later, treat people as part of the church even before, in a sense, they really are. It will get messy at times. Church life's a lot easier if you only let respectable, sorted out people into the church in the first place. Other churches may raise their eyebrows, but drunkard, glutton, friend of sinners, these should be badges of honor among those who follow Jesus Christ. Well, that was a couple of authors from across the pond in, in England. More near to home, a North Carolina author and a friend of mine from Gordon-Conwell days was even clearer in his book he wrote called The Church in Transition. This is Tim Condor up in the Raleigh-Durham area. He writes, a doctrinal approach to community formation has significant missional liabilities. One common axiom of emerging culture ministry is the declaration that emerging culture persons will join a community before affirming the beliefs of that community. In other words, emerging culture persons place belonging before believing. Using doctrine as the doorkeeper essentially slams shut the front door of the church in the face of spiritual seekers. These persons need to enter and participate in community as part of their search for spiritual truth and goodness. In fact, they are far more likely to make their spiritual discernment based on the quality and characteristics of a community rather than its doctrinal propositions, close quote. I appreciate what Tim is saying, but I also question his assumptions of the necessary tension and even opposition between believing being foundational to a community over against people feeling loved and, in some profound sense, even accepted or belonging in a community. Let me suggest a different way to come at this. If Jesus Christ came to save sinners, and if people must, as Jesus said, realize that they're sick before they see their need of the doctor, then don't people have to be aware of some doctrine? God's right wrath against us for our sins before they understand the one who creates our community, Jesus Christ, and how he does it by his work on the cross. I think that one way we can help each other in a church is by having what you could call high expectations for each other as people who claim to be converted. By high expectations, I simply mean that if you're a member of our church, we will treat you like you're converted. Uh, We'll assume that you increasingly love God and hate sin, and that if you live accordingly, that you'll want us to help you do that. Now, many churches compromise at just this point in order to gain a sudden influx of members. But by so doing, they usually doom themselves to losing the gospel and finally to extinction. So uh, here's a prediction I'll make. All the churches that in the last five years have found what they call spontaneous baptism, they are preparing themselves to become less distinctly Christian. That's not their intention, but that will be the effect of what they do. And if the Lord tarries, I I fear time will bear sad witness to the truth of that. Think very carefully, friends. Taking unconverted persons into communing membership in a Christian church will inevitably tend to obscure the gospel. If the gospel is downplayed or confused, the very lifeblood of the church is cut off, and the church increasingly loses any distinction from the unbelieving world. And if the salt loses its saltiness, it is good for nothing. And this raises the interesting question very practically, how apparently exclusive should our churches be? How apparently exclusive should our church calibrate our times of meeting, the length of our sermons, the style of our music, to what the unbelievers that we want to reach desire? How much is our gathering for the sake of those who are not Christians? Do we understand our meetings in our church Fundamentally, on the Lord's Day, fundamentally or mainly in terms of evangelism to non-Christians? The moment you become a Christian, this church stops being about you. Or are they fundamentally for building up our congregation and the members of Christ in it? This is another way to consider the question, rather than the often discussed how inclusive should we be. That's the popular way to ask it. But of course, everybody wants to be inclusive in the sense of everybody, everybody wants to be welcoming. I mean, this is obviously loving. Now, the, the question, I think, that will help us with our churches is to ask how obviously exclusive should we be. That will help us perhaps to be more transparent about the differences of life and doctrine that we have and will help to reflect then more deeply on the complete change that the non-Christian must self-consciously own by being aware first that they are subject to God's right wrath before they can understand and accept God's love in Christ and so turn from their sin and trust in Christ. Here's what I said once in a sermon at CHBC. My non-Christian friend, there is an unavoidable discontinuity between our lives and your life. And we actually serve you best if we're clear about that difference. If you've been enjoying the people, the friendliness, the helpfulness of the people in our congregation, that's wonderful. I hope that continues. And the good news I have for you in this is that there is even more to all this than you've experienced. Friend, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, I'm impressed that you're at church on a Saturday night. You're very welcome. Anytime Christ's covenant has a service here on Saturday night, I predict you are welcome so come anytime. But do understand clearly what the message of this church is, that you are not by nature in a good relationship with God. You by nature sin against God. And we know that not because we know you personally, but because of what the Bible tells us about each one of us. And our own lives bear witness to the truth of its statements. We know that about ourselves. And so our only hope is not for God to be fair with us, because fairness from God means judgment, because he's completely good. No, our only hope is for his mercy. And that's what he's shown us in Christ. The whole story of Jesus Christ is that God sent his only son uh, to become a man, to live a truly human life, and perfectly rely on his heavenly father, conforming his will to his father's will, living in complete dependence upon him, living the life Frankly, that you and I should have lived but haven't. And then he died on the cross as a substitute in the place of all those who had ever turned from their sin and trusted him. God raised him from the dead and he ascended to heaven, presented his sacrifice to his heavenly father who accepted it, and his reign began as the promised anointed king. And he calls all of us to turn from our sins and to trust in him and so give us forgiveness and adoption with God as his very own beloved children. Friend, that is what God calls you to in the gospel. That's what you want to understand more of what that could mean in your own life, even tonight. Friends, I think this all raises some questions about the idea of belonging before believing. Yes, we want to be kind and polite to visitors. Of course we do. But we want to also be very careful of giving non-Christians the theological lie That is, that they, in the most profound sense, belong. In the most profound sense, they don't. And we serve them if we tell them that. One of the utilities of us following the Lord's commands and remembering his sacrifice as he tells us to at the Lord's table is pressing us to make that distinction of those who confess Christ and those who do not. Of course, in our churches, we can and should be deliberately inclusive of professing Christians and non-Christians in some senses, and yet we are also deliberately and openly exclusive in another sense. We should show them there is something more beyond just this horizontal community or a vague sense of God's presence in our congregation's life. Friends, conversion need not be a, a dramatic emotional conversion Created by well intended emotional manipulation. Nor is conversion the mere assumption of your place in the family pew. Rather, Christian conversion is a self conscious owning of our own sin and of our resolve to repent and trust in Christ. Clarity on this point is essential for Christian faith and life and for Christian churches. Much more could be said about the implications for preaching, for pastoral care evangelism, but I think Kevin and I are going to talk for a few minutes now, so we can maybe cover some of that. I pray that God will make this church and all the churches represented here clear on the wonderful call that we give in the name of Christ to every person to turn from their sins and trust in Christ, to be born again, to be converted. Let me lead us in prayer. Lord, we pray that you would make this congregation clear in understanding and presenting your gospel. We pray that you would convict us of our sins and that you would show us the truth in Christ and give us great hope in him. Make this church and all the churches represented here lighthouses for your gospel in this city.
0: We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.